0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. You're listening to the Anthropology channel of New Books Network. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Yadon Lee, a host of New Books Network Anthropology and a PhD student in Anthropology at Tulane University. In the most common understanding, the term cosmopolitan indicates the devil near citizen of the world. Talking about this term, basically, it is more likely for us to think of global elites or maybe world travelers. Generally, I think it's very romantic Images. However, in her most recent monograph, Susan Ogdile juxtaposes cosmopolitans with the original inhabitants of the Amazon rainforest, presenting readers with their remarkable ability to live simultaneously across social boundaries and in more than one kind of word. This fascinating new book. Is a welcome support to her 2005 book, I Foresee My Life. The new book also continues her focus on autobiographical narratives. It is a book full of interesting life stories narrated by two legendary individuals. And I have to say, I can't wait to know more about the stories behind this book from its author. So welcome to today's podcast, Professor Ogdale.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm really glad that you accept my invitation. This new book, Amazonian Cosmopolitans, Navigating a Shamanic Cosmos, Shifting Indigenous Policies, and Other Modern Projects, is published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2022. Susan Ogdiel is the Professor of Anthropology at the University of New Mexico. Her research interests include personhood and agency, ritual and religion, embodiment, and also autobiographical narrative. Most of her research focuses on Amazonia. So before we dive into a discussion of this book, I always hope to let the audience know more about the author. So Professor Ogdier, could you please briefly introduce yourself to our audience?
0: Um, Well, I think you covered most of the main points. I've been at the University of New Mexico in the Department of Anthropology since 1998. Um, I suppose one thing that was not included is I'm also the editor of the Journal of Anthropological Research that's produced uh, here at the University of New Mexico and published by the University of Chicago. So, um, that's been a new project for me the last couple of years. Um, in terms of, uh, I suppose, other work other than my I Foresee My Life, which was about uh, Kamehamehaite ritual practice, I've also edited a book with Magnus Kors of the University of Edinburgh on life histories um, and the use of just autobiographical documents in lowland South America, which covers, you know, a wide range. So thank you for
1: this uh, self introduction. And we can see the very close connection between your last book, I foresee my life and the current one, Amazonian cosmopolitans. So for example, I can definitely see the connection like your emphasis on um, and the use of uh, the autobiographical narratives in your book, in your writing. Um, but I think we should let our audience know more about the book first. So, could you please tell us, as the author, what do you think this book is about? And where is the Shingu Indigenous Territory or Shingu National Park in the book? And who are the Kawaiiwate people?
0: Okay, um, let me start with the Kawaiiwate are a Tupian indigenous group in Brazil. Uh, they're also known. And I think in my previous books, I use the term Kayabi because they uh, went by that name uh, somewhere in the mid 90s, late 90s. They changed their name to the Kamiwete, at least the people that live in the Xingu area. Um, the Xingu, or the territory the Xingu is a river, and it's a tributary of the Amazon, and on that is basically in central Brazil, and around the upper regions of that river, there was a um, indigenous territory created in sixty one. It used to be called the Xingu National Park. In fact, it started as a national park and a nature preserve. And then it uh, has changed over the course of time. And now it's more uh, an indigenous uh, area. Um, and the Ka'iwete are people that moved into this space from territories in the West on the Telus River over the course of the fifties and the sixties. And then it trickled in after that too. So the Ka'iwete live both in the Shingu and on the Telespiris River, where they still call themselves the Kayabi. So that's kind of complicated, but it, it is. Uh, so those, those are the, that's the location and those are the the group involved. So in terms of what the group is about, I think it's very simply, it is two indigenous men, two Kamibate leaders, it is their experiences of the colonization of the Brazilian interior. So it's their stories about these large projects that took place over the twentieth century to, um, you know, incorporate the interior of Brazil into the larger structures of the nation, which include road building, um, airline, uh, uh, airfield. Uh, construction so that airlines could fly cross-continent rather than clinging to the coast. Um, Telegraphs in the earlier part of the 20th century, putting telegraph wires down, and all of these projects, resource extraction, obviously, of all different sorts. And all of these things um, rested on making contact with indigenous peoples and uh, you know, being able to pass through their territory uh, and not just making contact with them, also uh, using their expertise to open up the interior, because I don't I think it's often told as a story of bringing civilization to indigenous people, you know, these large projects bring these great things, medicine, roads, whatever. But none of this would have been possible without these people's expertise. Both of the territory, they are the people that actually knew the land and knew how to guide military planes for where to put airstrips down. They did the walking along the ground thing. the walking along the ground, the pilots like never got out of the airplanes basically. Um, it also relied on their linguistic ability. They are the people who were able to speak to other Indigenous people. Um, so it really, and just, just brute labor, uh, it really, this, these large projects rested on Indigenous labor.
1: Thank you, thank you. I think it's a very fascinating introduction of the book, and we can clearly see how many fields and how many information you definitely uh, convey through this book. And so let's talk about the book. So, Basically, about the writing, Amazonia cosmopolitans is far from a traditional anthropological work or, you know, a traditional a- ethnography in many aspects. So it is heavily based on the autobiographical narratives of two key interlocutors, as you mentioned, uh, rather than explicitly describing what you have has observe and what you had um, documented during the fieldwork. So it reminds me of some classic works in anthropology, such as Krapanzano's Tuhami and Shostak's Nisa. Uh, but definitely this book is very different from these classics. So what prompted you to do this project and make use of autobiographical narratives in your academic writing?
0: Um, I've always been interested in uh, life histories in anthropology, and they seemed in my graduate career, which was maybe in the 80s and 90s, they seemed like they didn't get a lot of respect, let's say, like they were something you would assign to an introductory class to try to get people interested, but maybe they weren't super serious. And um, I think I was a little obsessed with them. I read tons of them and I tried to figure out what it was that I liked about them. Um, And I think at first it was the texture, you know, it's the human details. It's the fact that you have individuals who don't fit into social norms and you can see people sort of struggling with norms and uh, expectations. Um, But as time went on, I think I realized the other thing I really like about them is the swath of time that you experience through them. Fieldwork feels like, you know, you see, you get a year, you know, two years maybe, and you feel like that's the whole story. But it's such a small slice of experience. And if you have someone who's in their 90s telling you about the last you know, 80 years, 90 years of, of their experience. That's pretty interesting. So I love the swath of time. Thank you. I
1: think it's a very good justification of your use of autobiographical narratives. It reminds me of uh, Fabian's Time and the Other because and um, the use of autobiographical narratives actually could make us get closer to the temporality of our interlocutors without you know, distance in us and the other. So it's very interesting and very, mm-hmm. you know, great practices. So, as the other, what do you think is the most creative or innovative aspect of Amazonia cosmopolitans?
0: Um, I think that it is offering indigenous perspectives on state projects that are from within these projects, not from the outside. Um, I think especially in Amazonia, there's a, a tendency to take indigenous perspectives in terms of their novelty or their misunderstanding of things. And that's certainly there. I mean, not everyone understands money or understands airplanes or priests or whatever thing that they're encountering. There's plenty of stories about how they oh treat airplanes like spirits or you don't, under, don't understand money or whatever. But these are stories about people who really understand these projects very, very well. And that is kind of what I think is creative about it. So it confounds the categories of the West and the Amerindian. Um, it doesn't show people as as other quote unquote, but rather as uh, having distinctive perspectives, yes, but also really understanding the large structures they're involved in. And possibly not every interlocutor would be this shrewd, but these two men definitely were. Definitely, so, definitely. Yeah, I, I, so that's I think that's creative. Um, I think the other thing I suppose that I would consider my contribution is that I draw on Brazilian anthropology um Eduardo Viveiros de Castro's ideas about or, or uh, characterizations of Am- Amazonian ontologies as perspectival and multi uh natural and he contrasts those with western ontologies as being multicultural so basically I think Amazonians you know, take this stuff as second nature now, it's been very useful to figure, you know, to understand things in the Amazon, understand, you know, people's perceptions of things. Um, but basically it's the idea that in the West, we have this idea that we're all united by uh, our physical substance. We basically have similar biology, cells. You know, the basic physical part of life is similar between animals and humans. What separates us is culture, and he contrasts that with the Amazonian idea that what we all really share is culture in the for Amazonians. Um, and that our bodies are different and that different bodies say animals and humans or different kinds of humans give rise to different perspectives. So, okay. So a lot of people draw on that. That's really popular has been for a long time now, but I think what I do is I take that and I put it into dialogue with history. Perspectivism is often very focused on cosmology, religion, ritual, things that don't have much grounding or anchoring in a historical time period. And I think my move is to anchor it in actual historical or I don't know, actual but you know, historical time for things that we all share. Like when Pan Am started flying across the continent in South America. That's something that affected all of our lives. Um and it affected their lives. So how do you put perspectivism together with that kind of historical narrative?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I could see some connection between this work and the so-called uh, ontological turn in today's anthropology. Basically, it's a challenge of the, you know, former classic um, multiculturalism and the full perspectivism in especially Amazonian anthropology and I think but I
0: use it too I mean it's a challenge but it also draws on it I'm very indebted to it and yet I don't like the strict West versus Amerindian
1: true yeah definitely can see it in this book and we will talk about it later so um about writing this book I think this is very interesting because as uh, a narrative material uh, used in this book were collected by you in the 1990s I think you know according to your uh, acknowledgement but the book was officially released in 2022 so it is such a long journey so what happened between the fieldwork and the publication of this book and what was the process of reading you know of writing this book like to you and um, you know as the author
0: yes it's a good question um well first of all I ignored this material for 10 years or so. I had really been focused on indigenous genres of autobiography and especially looked at those things that were woven into rituals like curing rituals, also mortuary rituals and political oratory and was really interested in looking at indigenous genres. How do people talk about their lives? But I had also done these interviews because some people asked me to. They said, I wanna tell you about my life. You know, They didn't wanna do it in a curing ritual format. They wanted to do it in sort of a typical life history format. And then I thought, well, I should also collect a few more just because it's important somehow. But I felt like it wasn't, um, it didn't fit my earlier paradigm of what I was looking for. I was looking for things that were really indigenous, not shaped by me, not shaped by an interview genre. And this material was exactly that. It was in interview genre. I ask a question, they answer. Um, so I ignored it, at least 10 years. Then I thought, you know, this stuff is interesting. These men were super interesting, but I didn't understand what they were talking about. There are a lot of personal names. Some of them are famous people like the Velas Boas brothers who were the architects of the Shingu uh, Park now territory, I knew who they were, but there were a whole bunch of other names of like rubber bosses and host employees. I really didn't know who they were talking about. I know their relatives found these, these narratives interesting, but I couldn't quite connect. So um, I started to research Brazilian history. And I think at least you know, in the 80s and 90s, history and anthropology was starting to be a big deal. Historical consciousness was a big deal, but we weren't really pushed to understand a national history. And I don't think I understood the history of the interior of Brazil all that well. Thankfully, in that time period, a bunch of good books have been published, um, a lot by Brazilians, um, some by Americans, uh, Brazilians, Mened. Mened Menendez, uh, Maria Lucia Menendez, I'm sorry, I I can't say that. And then Seth Garfield, um, foreign American, also John Hemming, he's a British historian. Um, uh, Lima, uh, Antonio Carlos Lima is another Brazilian historian, this sort of stuff indigenous history. So I had the benefit of secondary sources. Which I hadn't had earlier, and I started reading these things. So that was sort of step number one, and then um, step number two was to go to the archives. So I did a lot of archival research in the early two thousands, you know, two thousand up to two thousand fifteen or so. Um, I went to Jesuit archives. Um, I went to state archives in the basically the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which would be FUNAI uh, in Brazil. Um, I went to other missionary archives, more liberation theology type missionary archives, um, and researched what was going on in these territories. And amazingly, I even found these men. You know, I found their names, which is like, so amazing
1: yeah so you can see the resonance between life stories and the archival material is amazing yeah,
0: yeah. definitely
1: yeah. i think any ethnographer can understand what you just described you know complex chaotic but extremely interesting is what life histories life stories should be basically i think mm-hmm. and let's talk about the two key narrators in your book so two indigenous kawaiwete and leaders are the key narrators in your book. They they also appear in your last book, I Foresee My Life. Um, But for the audience with all information about them, could you please tell, um, tell us a little bit about them? And also, why do you choose these two as the key narrators?
0: um yes well i think in part it's because they were really charismatic leaders they were uh, i knew them late in their life they're both born in the early part of the 20th century um they were people who were in part chose me um sabino asked me if he could record his life story with me he had done it with other anthropologists in the 60s and he wanted to do it again and so i thought that well that's great can't refuse that. And he had done a lot. He'd been in a lot of different situations, interacted with a lot of people. So he was particularly interesting. And then Prepperie was one of the more famous shaman in the 20th century, and early 21st, uh, among the Kamibutai. So he was interesting to me for a number of reasons. And I thought it would be interesting to know about his life. And I think I didn't really realize, but he was also the person that brought the Kaliwete to the Shingu. So he was a key player. He was also very close to the Villas-Boas brothers, uh, kind of a right-hand man of theirs in the early part of the Shingu's construction. Uh, There's been a movie made by Amberger, I think it's called the Shingu National Park or something like that, where somebody plays Brepuri. Like, so he's He's kind of famous in in Brazil. Um, and so why did I pick them? They were charismatic. They had a lot of experiences. They were willing to talk about them. um and they want you know they they worked with me, and, and they are oh, fascinating
1: storytellers, basically, I think they
0: are, yeah.
1: And I think what is important is their life stories are also um, revolving around the SPI and the state-led development project in Brazil. So let's talk about it. So talking about the state-led modernization efforts in the Amazonian region, the SPI is a keyword that we cannot escape from basically. So what is the SPI and what roles do your key interlocutors play in it?
0: The SBI is the Indian Protection Service or the Servicio de Proteção aos Indios that was created in 1910 by the state and directed by uh, Rondon, uh, who was a military man. He was also in part Indigenous himself. His grandparents on one side were Indigenous people. Um, and it was a new kind of modern policy for indigenous people at, you know, in 1910, which was about including them in the nation, not about keeping them out of the nation. And it was all about acculturation. It was about bringing people into civilization, bringing them into capitalism, getting them hooked on various sorts of goods. Um, it was probably done by Rondon with the best of intentions. Uh, people loved him, Um uh, including the coming that I uh, met who had met him, as well as other people that I've worked with, indigenous people. But, you know, it was, uh, the idea was that uh, indigenous people were not as civilized. They were not as advanced or as modern. And so it was about modernizing them and bringing them into the nation. So um, what did these men have to do with it they were all employed by it in one way or another, um, or tried, or uh, lived in SBI posts as children. Um, Sabino was orphaned; and he was um, adopted by a chief of an SBI post, so a Brazilian worker out there in the in the interior. Um, and part of the the way you brought people into the modern world, indigenous people, was through work and through labor. So it was not a really pleasant experience. It was involved a lot of work. Um, So it definitely had its dark side. It also became really riddled with uh, corruption. And then in 1967, it was disbanded, and FUNAI or the Fundação Nacional do Indio took over. So that it's the precursor of FUNAI, the SBI. And these men uh, were intimately connected to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, uh, you know, we will talk about their life stories more detailedly later, and we can let our audience to see uh, their the connection between their personal life and the, you know, the larger, this more structural transformation of this, you know, state-led development projects. So in my opinion, I think, personal narratives and life stories are very important because it can bridge between the individual and the structural. And that is to say, through diving into personal narratives, what we, what we can see is how larger transformations happen and are understood in personal lives. We can also do comparison between different narratives, different personal narratives of the same event to see how different positions of this person uh, could result in different feelings or understanding of structural changes. So what are the disparities between Sabino's and Pribori's narrative? And how do these disparities reveal the different positions and histories of, of, of these two narrators?
0: Yes, they both have very different views about the larger structures that they're involved in. And they have different appreciations of them. In part, it's probably because of the, the different individuals that they met and the opportunities that they had. Um, I, I don't even really go into why they have different perspectives, but they do have different perspectives. Um, Sabino was much more interested in becoming part of capitalist systems like rubber production. And he was treated well by rubber bosses really, by and large. Um, In part, it was because during World War II, these Kayabe areas were rich with rubber trees and he controlled a lot of workers. He could speak to them in, in Kayabe and rubber bosses couldn't and so he was sort of the node to a lot of wealth for rubber tappers um you know would that have continued i don't know but um i mean rubber production didn't you know maintain such a wasn't as lucrative after after the war um so anyway he he's more interested in getting involved in capitalism he's also not so interested in leaving behind his territory, but he does. Prepuri, on the other hand, um, is very skeptical of rubber tapping, very skeptical of the Catholic church. For example, Sabino was not so skeptical. Um, And he is more interested in living in a more isolated existence. One that the Shingu, uh, the indigenous territory of the Shingu offered him in the late forties, fifties. Um, and he was right there on the ground with constructing that space as a haven for indigenous people. And he was very, cl- again, I said, close with the villas Bros brothers, the architects of the Shingu. And so he started to, I think, value that much more than engagement in local industry. And he also seemed to be able to uh, turn culture into a resource. He started to understand what this cultural distinctive meant, distinctiveness meant in the eyes of Brazilians and the world, because the world was looking at this, this new space for indigenous people. And um, so he was more interested in that avenue. I would say for both of them though, even though that was sort of, they looked at their options and they picked different options, they were both critical of all the different uh, possibilities. So Sabino understood some of the hazards of getting involved in rubber tapping. Prepuri understood um, some of the constructed nature of, of cultural display. Um so they weren't uncritical. Interesting. Uh, so those Interesting. Are the
1: yeah, definitely. I think you basically in the book you present how diverse the voices of indigenous people can be and how critical they can be. They are not a victim or the passive receiver of development project, but actually they actively participate in it and to turn all this project into their resources in many different ways. So this is, I think, one of the most important contributions of this book. And another important topics of this book, I think is embodiment. So embodiment, especially bodily transformation, it's one of the most important motifs in your book and also in shamanic practices and in shamanic narratives. We're all talking about bodily transformations and embodiment. It is literally impossible to study shamanic cosmology. So through the narratives of embodiment, we can see how state level policies was uh, initiated and perceived at the level of the, of the individual. So, first of all, can you give some examples of how bodily transformation plays a significant role in your interlocutors' narratives? And how does this motif of embodiment reveal indig- Indigenous people's connection with broader transformation? Um,
0: yes, that's a good question. Um the focus on the body and transformation, but the body is a transformational kind of medium has been really developed with a lot of different uh researchers in amazonia so that's not terribly creative i guess on my part but um i think linking it up to historical stories maybe is the creative move um, and as these men get involved with new communities new people new relationships new structures they undergo transformations in their bodies and they describe it that way so the past the what what now is called traction was then called pacification of indigenous people which was the spi reaching out and bringing these people into a a post and harnessing them up to various sorts of projects um that process was really seen from the brazilian point of view as all about material goods that these people really wanted axes and knives and they wanted Uh, you know, mirrors and beads and this sort of stuff. And that's what really drove the whole process. And that that would ultimately get them hooked into wage labor, because they would want to earn money to buy those things. From the community perspective, both men, especially Sabino talked about this. Um, It's really about eating Brazilians' foods. That is what really changed them and brought them into the Brazilian nation. Not so much the goods. Yeah, they wanted them, but that didn't involve a transformation. What involved a transformation was starting to eat like Brazilians. So um, drinking coffee, drinking milk, uh, eating the sorts of things that Brazilians eat. Um, And their story of, of, of pacification, using the Brazilian term or civilization, also was used, um, it was about changing your diet, which is really kind of interesting. And the other thing that's interesting is that it was not a one-way process. You, It wasn't, and I think from the Brazilian point of view, it was like once you were civilized, you're not going backwards. But from their point of view, it was. You change your eating. You start to eat like uh, upper Shinguans, which were the people that lived in the Shingu when they arrived there. You can become Shinguan by eating their food. Um, so it's very uh, 2 bi-directional, um, lots of transformations. Uh, I suppose the other thing is the surface of the body massage and painting is also important both in shamanism but um in this process of you know becoming civilized quote unquote dressing in brazilian clothing was important if you were going to be civilized and it was obviously from the Brazilian point of view too that was also a marker um are people wearing clothes or are they not that determined if you would fire on them or not from a canoe in some of the reports i was reading but um, sometimes like Sabino went back to his um, a village where he had grown up and the way he was reincorporated was he was covered over with red body paint on his head and on his white Brazilian shirt. So it was like a, a, a way of reindigenizing him, which is I think interesting. So they're little details, but they add up like each, each story you think, oh, is that important? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. But when you look at all the little details that have to do with the body, it does seem to make an argument that that is the way they're understanding new relationships
1: absolutely absolutely i think there are too many aspects we can see from your book like clothes like food and especially i think the food part is the most impressive one for me because at the beginning they cannot they are not and um, they, they they did not you know want to eat not only about it but they actually cannot digest this they can't food from digest outside. they vomit yeah. it
0: they, they throw it back or describe themselves as vomiting it
1: yeah, it's just fascinating. And, and next part is what I think, my, I, pe- my pe- I personally think is the most interesting part of your book. And it's the presence of international researchers in Shingu uh, indigenous territory. In your book, you describe researchers from different disciplines, including yourself and anthropologists, are already part of the fabric of indig- indigenous life in the Shingu uh, indigenous territory. Um, so why and how has those outsider visitors become an integral part of Shingu's history and everyday life?
0: Well, when the park was officially opened in 61, it was definitely seen as a showplace um, of prehistoric Brazil, of um, a Brazil that was preserved from an earlier period. Um, so... Uh, The Brazilian state saw it as a place that researchers would want to go. Uh, You know, it is interesting, it definitely is, but they funneled researchers into the park and away from other areas. I think they were not as encouraged. Also, it's a place of media, um, TV, you know, soap operas, uh, news shows, people go there and film about indigenous life because it is very picturesque. Um, People don't wear a lot of clothes. The houses look very traditional. Um, So it it was uh, an odd place. Also, the fact that it's on these air, it, it had an airstrip. So unlike someplace really remote in say Hondonia or Acre or the states in the West where you'd have to go for days on a boat or whatever, you can go there from the capital of Brazil in a very short amount of time on an airplane. Like it's very easy. So that's another reason I think why there were so many researchers. Um, So there's just a lot of them in the Shingu and there has been. Um, So it's almost like researchers are another tribe or something in the in the territory it's like they're a certain type of person um they also have their habitus very much like you know an upper shingu and Yura has a certain way of speaking and dressing and moving and Kamite know that the anthropologist does too they are the sort of people who are always maintaining um value neutral appreciations of things you know all indigenous life is good it's not that one is better than the other everything is very value neutral um off you know oftentimes they you know many times they go naked um they're a certain kind of person that that's recognizable um and and your question was I guess uh like you know how
1: all outside the visitors become an integral part. and also I'd like to know more about how the interactions between like uh, social scientists, anthropologists as well as other researchers and the Shingu Indian people um, are like and what is the impact of this interaction shaping their life and to, uh, as as you know cosmopolitans.
0: Yes, thank you. Well first of all, it means there's people from all over the globe coming to the Shingu. Including, like you know, the King of Belgium went there. Um, all sorts of, you know, Japanese anthropologists and European French anthropologists. I mean, it's a uh, it was a huge number of people that I met in one year who came through. So, um, and they bring resources. I think that's the big, um, maybe the big impact is they bring resources and they bring an interest in culture, in distinctiveness, and those two things together maybe shape uh, quite a bit of ritual performance, shamanism, that that people are on display in a sense. Yeah, fascinating, and you
1: talk about um, the researchers and um, you know constitute another tribe in the forest and i basically cannot imagine such you know situation but it's super interesting well,
0: you know they come at different times it's not like they're there in mass but mm-hmm. but they all are, are somewhat similar
1: oh very interesting you so mean, basically people
0: from around the world interested in the amazon
1: yeah they're
0: kind of similar types I, I don't know
1: super interesting
0: and also, I think there must have been a lot of
1: uh, interview interviewers asking you this question, and it's about decolonialization in writing. Oh, that, so, yeah. Yeah. so in the book, I can see your effort of presenting the indigenous people as self-reflective and very critical actors in the development projects, rather than, as I mentioned before, rather than some kind of victims and um, or you know passive receiver of outside information, and you just present them as who are able to move between what we can think of as larger and a smaller scales and they are fully capable of expressing themselves and expressing their multi movements in their autobiographical narratives. So in this sense, even though this is a vague and umbrella term, can I describe this book as a decolonial project or decolonial practice?
0: Yeah, I think so in that sort of large, large meaning of the term, or broad meaning of the term, I do try to counter the ways that indigenous people have been um, portrayed in colonial projects, and that would be as discrete groups stuck in the past, less reflexive, backward, maybe, and I want to present these people as very self reflexive, very modern, uh, although they have unique perspectives. They're definitely not stuck in some kind of uh, indigenous past, prehistoric, pre, uh, you know, 1500s, you know, 1400s mode of life. So it is, in a sense, countering the way that colonial projects have understood indigenous people definitely absolutely and finally i want to go back
1: to the title of the book It's about cosmopolitans so this is a book titled amazonian cosmopolitans but what is striking is the use of cosmopolitan and also uh, cosmopolitanism in the book it's basically different from the common understanding of this term so what do you precisely mean by this term and what do you want the readers to know or recognize through this your 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 special usage of this
0: term well i I think I use it in a very broad way, and it's the an attitude of openness, a willingness to um, engage in expansive moral communities. So um, that is so. That's how I use the term. I think that you know someone like Martha Nussbaum has maybe a classic definition, which would be allegiance to a worldwide community of human beings. Um, I don't think it is exactly the way I'm using the term. First of all, uh, I wouldn't restrict cosmopolitanism to human beings, and it definitely isn't just human beings in these narratives. This goes beyond the human, so that's one thing. Um, The second thing I would say is that we imagine cosmopolitans to be travelers who go to cities and uh they might even they might be poor they might be guest workers or as you said oftentimes they're the elite um these men are travelers they travel around the amazon and travel is very important for coming with tay but they're not traveling to big cities which other indigenous people are uh in say paris in europe or something they I'm using the term cosmopolitan to make the point that the world comes to this, to central Brazil in the 20s, in the, in the 20th century, from the 20s up to, well, even present day, um, from the 20s on, maybe even before the 20s, but it certainly starts um, very intensively in the 20th century, where all sorts of people all sorts of industry all sorts of interests get involved in the amazon uh, for various reasons a lot of it is research source extraction but some of it is research and um you know environmentalism as well brings all sorts of people to the amazon so like they don't need to go anywhere to be cosmopolitans the world comes to them fascinating and also i
1: i just um noticed that you use another term uh, grassroots cosmopolitanism because it this term is very interesting for me because um you know on the surface it is quite paradoxical because grassroots basically we think of grassroots it's rooted it's grounded in very specific very local context. but cosmopolitanism as you mentioned sometimes means movement movement and mobility through different places. So what are you using this term to convey? And do you think this conceptualization is effective beyond the Amazonian context?
0: Yes, I even took it from beyond the Amazonian context. I took it from Eric Hirsch writing about Melanesia and shamans there. And I like it because it is, I think it captures a way of being expansive that is a distinctive way of doing it, um, and it's it started with the shamanic um, thinking about shamans as being expansive travelers, but I think it could go beyond that. It's a particular Comayote way of being expansive, so it's kind that's of it. culturally specific. Mm-hmm. I think that's the rooted part. And yeah, the metaphor is possibly a mixed metaphor because grass doesn't travel unless it's cut. You know, like the rooted part is maybe it's a bit hard to think about but i think the way i like to use it is as a culturally distinctive way yeah yeah
1: Expensive. exactly i think it depends on our uh, power of imagination because grass can fly because of wind so basically it can it can be you know mobile. That's true.
0: Grass <laughs> certainly can yeah right yeah
1: interesting so as we are approaching the end of today's podcast the final question is uh, what are you working on now and what is your future research plan so after the two books based on your 1990s fieldwork will we see another monograph continuing their focus like a trilogy please share with us
0: oh um i'm not sure about that yet um i'm working on a uh paper right now which is just about to be published with a brazilian anthropologist rodrigo brusco and we're comparing um 30 years of relationships with spirits the commonplace relations with spirits and the argument is that they're getting closer to spirits spirits are more involved in things like human conception than they were in the past um so right now i think i'm I'm using my material maybe historically to to contrast with um, a present day uh, researcher. I'm in contact with people, but I haven't done like long-term field work in a long time. I think 2015 was my last visit. Um, So I don't know about a monograph um, possibly. I still have a lot of material um, I'm not quite sure. I, I have switched topics to, um, I'm currently researching the experience of autoimmu- an autoimmune disease named celiac, which is about um, a disease that means you can't have any gluten and you have to be very, very careful about it. It's more so than just being gluten-free. And I'm looking at um, people with celiac who have started businesses like bakeries, and created small gluten-free worlds, and it started with autobiography. I was interested in their autobiographies on their business web pages, but it is uh, kind of morphing into you know how do they provide um, med- inform- dietary information to other people? How are they like life coaches in a way for other people with this disease? And honestly, it's just as Um, otherworldly as shamanism because like shamanism where people fall sick and they don't know why they can't see why it's very similar to gluten in the sense that all of a sudden your world becomes full of this disease causing agent that you can't see and that you had no idea was a problem and that is part of the very fabric of your life it's part of catholic communion it's part of all your family recipes it's um, at the very center of your culture is, is wheat. And so I guess the interesting thing there is, you know, how do people manage that more socially than, than dietarily? So I'm, I'm moving. I mean, I'm adding, I'm not moving. I'm still interested in Lowland Brazil and coming with a life. But I'm not sure there's a a whole book coming on, on that. There will be one on celiac though.
1: But basically, yeah. I think your, your your forthcoming paper sounds fascinating, and the parallel you built between uh, the shamanism and also the contemporary recipe, and you know something like this, is fascinating. I'm very looking forward to talk about it in the future and having another conversation with you. You know, if you have a new monograph, because I believe a new researcher will continuously benefit from your uh, usage of your material in the 1990s basically. and oh, Professor, yeah yeah Professor Odale, thank you so much for coming to today's podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you for joining us. In today's podcast we discussed a new book by Suzanne Nocdale, Amazonia Cosmopolitans Navigating a Shamanic Cosmos, Shifting Indigenous Policies and other modern projects published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2022. It is a book written in a very interesting way and discussing some very important issues in both Amazonian anthropology and anthropology in general. If you are interested in how Amazonian people have actively engaged in modernization projects, or if you are interested in the topics like embodiment and how to use autobiographical narratives in anthropological writing, you will not want to miss this book. Thank you for listening to New Books in Anthropology, and we will see you next time.